Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father. Always we begin with thanks for a room that is uh, filled with those who have taken time out of a busy week and an evening. I'm sure they had other things they could be doing, Father. And I'm always thankful when I see men and women gather for your word and to hear it taught in depth. It is so counterculture, Father. It is so antithetical to what the world values. And in just the fact that people would set aside time and come to hear your word, it's proof, Father, of your power to change hearts and of the Spirit's ability to draw men and women to know you. And I thank you, Father, that well, I can be a part of that and everyone in this room can be a part of that. And, Father, I thank you that uh, you were doing that even centuries ago with John, a man who didn't know you until you introduced him to the truth of the gospel. And, Father, he came and he t- saw and he learned and he taught. And here we are, Father, benefiting from what you gave him. Thank you, Father, for that amazing sovereign uh, power that you possess. And, Lord, I pray as we learn, as we see Jesus talking with the crowd, we learn from what he says, we learn from what they say. Father, um, it may be impressed upon each heart here, some person, some family member, perhaps, someone we know who is represented in this moment by the crowd and their response to Christ. And, Father, I pray that you would show us how we can speak the same words he did and do so in love in the hope that you'll convert a heart. I pray, Father, for that opportunity through this teaching. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. This study in John 8 is a continuation on the study of the Feast of Tabernacles. If you go all the way back to chapter 7... We began there with Jesus and his brothers talking about whether he should go to the feast. You remember that scene? Following that, you see Jesus' secret arrival into the city. The teaching he does in the temple in the later part of that week of the Feast of Tabernacles. And then on the seventh day, uh, we see Jesus standing in the temple. And then the time comes for that water drawing festival, you remember. And then as the water is poured out at the base of the altar and so on, Jesus interrupts that ceremony to declare that those who are thirsty should come to him and he would give them living water. Remember, and we see how he took the ceremony and its symbolism and he pointed it in his direction and revealed himself to be the fulfillment of it. Then we moved into chapter eight last week, but we're still in the same moment, at least in the sense that we're still in the temple. He's still teaching. We covered how the story itself was probably not original to the chapter, but be that as it may, setting that aside, In the story, Jesus now is confronted by Pharisees in the temple with that adulterous woman. And that story was our opportunity to see Jesus get the better of hypocrites, which is always a fun thing to see in the Gospels. He showed that these men were unqualified to judge the woman. And so they gave up their game. And Jesus, as you know, refrained from judging the woman as well. So we looked at that little moment set in the midst of this larger context of Jesus teaching in the temple on the occasion of tabernacles. Now in the rest of eight, which is what we do today, and then into chapter nine and actually all the way into the beginning of chapter 10, we're still in this same moment in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles on the last day. So that's how much John is giving to this moment should tell you something about how important he thought it was. So today in chapter eight, John recounts another moment on that seventh day of the feast with Jesus teaching in the temple. Once again, he's going to make a comparison between himself and the feast, but in a new way. And then next week, we're going to get into chapter nine. John heals a man, performs a healing. He does so as he walks out of the temple. I'm sorry. Who did I say? John. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, no, John's just writing about it. Try to keep up, Jerry. (laughs) 
Thank you very much. So Jesus, as he's walking out of the temple, does this healing. That's what we see in chapter 9. That healing in chapter 9, as we'll learn next week, that's a powerful illustration. It will serve as a powerful illustration of what we're going to see taught today. So the way these weave together is a teaching today, pretty much a narrative today between or a discourse today between Jesus and the crowd, which sets up some very important principles, which we study tonight. Those principles play out in the example that immediately follows as he exits the temple. So clearly the hand of God is on all of this. You see how he's weaved all this together and set up the events so that they will play out in just such a way. Lastly, when we get to chapter 10, John records one last encounter between Jesus and the crowd. And that's where we're going to see more division. So here's the pattern. Jesus teaching plainly about himself to a crowd that's not believing by and large, followed by illustrations of himself, either in the ceremonies or in the healings that he's doing. And in between all of these examples of these illustrations, more teachings. First of all, we have to finish chapter eight. So let's begin in chapter eight, verse 12. That's where we pick up again right after the moment with the woman. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, well, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So Jesus begins declaring to the crowd gathered in the temple that he is the light of the world. Now remember, this is taking place... On the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which, as John described earlier, is the greatest day, the day of greatest joy. And it's also the greatest feast of the calendar year, at least in terms of how the people saw it. They were the most enthusiastic about this feast. It was the one in which there was the greatest participation. And here he is again, standing in the temple, saying, I am the light of the world. Now, that sounds an awful lot like the declaration that Jesus made in chapter seven. Remember, although in chapter seven, it was water. He said, I am the source of living water. Now, when he said that about himself in chapter seven, about the water, remember, he chose a moment when the water ceremony was taking place in the temple simultaneously. So as he speaks those words, he was connecting himself with that imagery. Well, now, as he speaks these words, he is doing it at the point of another part in the ceremony that took place on that day. There was a ceremony every evening during the week of the Feast of Tabernacles called the kindling of the lights. And there were huge menorah or lampstands set up in the temple courtyard. These are huge. We're not talking about your normal household style. These are ones that were intended to light up the entire courtyard. And the lampstands were similar to the menorah, except that they only had four cups instead of the normal seven. And at sundown, the cups would be lit each night of the week of that festival. Following the lighting, the men in the temple then would take smaller handheld torches and kindle them from the fire of the menorah. And then they begin dancing and some would begin juggling their torches of fire, just like you were at a luau. They did this to symbolize the Shekinah glory of God. The fire, as it's moving, starts to create just this eerie glow. The fire almost becomes a stream, right? 
Imagine a bunch of people doing this in the courtyard and you get a sense of why it would represent to them the glory of God in the temple. Now, on the final night, the seventh night of the feast, the lamps were not lit since the feast had come to an end that night. John said, as we saw earlier, this is the last day of the feast, which means the lights were not being lit on this evening. And so it is in the midst of dark menorahs, in the absence of light, Jesus stands up and declares he is the light and that he who follows him will walk not in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, by this point in John's gospel, the meaning of all those symbols are so familiar. I'm not going to spend a lot of time retelling what we learned back in chapter one about him being light and the pictures of light and so on. We know it's a picture of eternal glory and of righteousness and of the truth of God's word. Those things are represented by light in Scripture. And conversely, darkness is a metaphor for evil and for unbelieving hearts and for a life of sin and deception. So throughout the Bible, light has been associated with God's presence and with his life giving power. And Jesus is simply reiterating that now. And in this moment, which is what makes this so powerful in this moment, it's a dark scene. It's a dark moment. And the true light of the world spiritually is standing before them. And in the darkness of their hearts, they don't see him as Messiah, as he truly was. They don't embrace him. And as with the water, he came to fulfill the reality of the symbols that they've been celebrating all week, which were intended to represent him. But most people were missing the truth. So there's irony really stacked on top of irony here. The irony of him being the very thing they're celebrating in lesser form, but they don't see him as that fulfillment, though he's declaring himself to be so. And the fact that they're standing in darkness in front of the light of the world and don't recognize him as the light. I bet if you'd asked anybody in the crowd, they would rather have had one of those torches lit than to have been content with the light of Christ. That is the truth of the gospel. Now, in response to his provocative words, what do we see again? We see the Pharisees saying your words are not true because you testify about yourself. Now, the Pharisees are applying a basic principle of Mosaic law in what they say. Under the law, no matter of significance could be settled on the basis of only one witness. So important matters re required the testimony of at least two witnesses to protect against bias or against the deception of a single opinion. So these men are claiming that Jesus's words concerning himself cannot be accepted as truth because he is testifying about himself alone, as it were, with no corroborating witness standing there with him to say, yes, he is the Messiah. Now, I want you to notice something they aren't charging him with lying because he's saying something that isn't true necessarily. It is clear they recognize Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. They just aren't willing to accept that testimony. And because they think he's speaking without any corroboration, they accuse him of speaking without proof. Therefore, by default, he must be lying. Jesus contends with that wrong assumption with two arguments. First, he refutes the bad logic because, yes, the Mosaic law did not accept the testimony of a single witness. But that doesn't mean that one witness was automatically wrong. It just means that wasn't the basis for conviction. But in verse 14, Jesus says, even if I am testifying about myself, my testimony isn't automatically false. In fact, he says his testimony is true because he knew things that no other man could know. In other words, he's explaining why there can't be another human being standing there testifying about himself. It's not possible on this matter, on the issue of the Messiah. No man has been where Jesus has been. No man has seen what Jesus has seen, speaking of the heavenly realm. 
So Jesus knows the whole history from beginning to end of the creation. And therefore, he has to stand alone among humanity in testifying about himself. I don't care who the Messiah is. I don't care when he came. That was going to be the problem for anyone who was the Messiah. There is no human being who can say, I know also he's the Messiah because I was there. I saw it. That's not possible. Nevertheless, it's true. He is the Messiah. And secondly, these men are capable only of judging matters of flesh, Jesus says. That is, matters of the physical world. Notice he says your law. Jesus doesn't say our law. He speaks about the Mosaic law as something God gave to men, not something that binds God himself. And that's true. Remember when Jesus says the Sabbath was given for men. Right. The Sabbath is given by God to men as part of the law. The law is given by God to men. He says, this is your law. And in your law, it, it was given to you to regulate Israel through this requirement of two witnesses. But it was never intended to be an instrument by which men would judge God. It's not intended to work that way. Furthermore, the men of Israel couldn't make such a judgment. They can't judge God. They can't make a decision as to whether God is true or not. They have no basis on which to do that. Jesus says, so, number one, what I'm saying is true regardless of the fact that I say it alone, because you couldn't have a witness like me. Secondly, he says, you're not in a position to judge me because the law that you're trying to apply doesn't apply to God. You would never judge the Messiah by the law. Now, God kept the law in Christ for our sake because we couldn't keep it, but he didn't keep it because he had to keep it. You see the difference? He did it in our place because we are supposed to. He didn't do it because he had to. Now, in contrast to men, Jesus says, I'm not judging anyone. Remember, we said last week that the main reason why Jesus could not act against that woman in judgment is because he had been told by the father in his mission to come to earth that he's not coming for the purpose of judgment. He's precluded from acting in judgment right now. He says this here again. I'm not judging anyone. He's not witnessing against someone else for the purpose of law. Jesus says, even if I were to pass judgment upon a man on the basis of just my own testimony, it would still be a true judgment. And I love that statement. He's saying, look, why did the law require two witnesses? Think about it. Because men lie. Because men are not trustworthy, I want at least two that it's at least doubling my chance to get the truth, if not more so. God doesn't lie. So he's saying, even if I were to judge alone, my judgment's going to be true regardless. You don't need two of God to say that you're doing the right thing. One of God is enough. And that's his point. His testimony is always true. His judgments are always righteous because he is uniquely qualified to do that. And therefore, no one needs to join him in witnessing. So nevertheless... Jesus says, my witness is not alone. Even though I've said all of what I said, even though that proves I don't need one, I have one. In verse 16, Jesus said he was sent by the Father, and the Father is at work in testifying alongside Jesus that he is the Messiah. So how is the Father testifying that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, first and foremost, by the law and the prophets, by the word of God. That's a living, standing testimony from the Father to the earth about who the Messiah would be, and Jesus fulfilled all of that law. The word of God specifically foretold all the details of his life, including where he would be born, who his tribe would be, and he has met all of those tests. How possible is it for a human being to contrive things like the day and place of your birth or the parents or the tribe from which you descend? How easily can someone contrive those things so as to fake their way into Messiah? The testimony that Jesus is Messiah came through the Father, through the word, by the way, Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Number two. The father testified that Jesus is Messiah through men like John the Baptist. Remember earlier in the gospel, we heard that John's testimony was part of how God was justifying or substantiating Christ's claims. Remember, he said plainly, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's a testimony from the father. 
And then lastly, the father testifies to the spirit who empowered Christ to perform miracles. We're told in the Gospels that Jesus's miraculous powers were given to him through the spirit working through him. So every time he did a miraculous work, the crowds, as you remember, we've seen this already. Every time they see something miraculous, what do they say? They, they react to it as if they've just seen the prophet or the Messiah. They knew it. They understood what they were seeing as proof. Therefore, if Jesus is performing works that only God can perform, then it's proof the father is endorsing his claims. Think about it. If a man says he's the Messiah and he's lying, is God the father going to permit him to do miraculous works in evidence of his claims? Why would God support the enemy in that work, right? It makes no sense. So once you can prove that you have the power to do things only God can do, you're showing de facto evidence that God has endorsed this claim, demonstrating God's stamp of approval when you see God giving these powers that are legitimate. So in verse 17 through 18, Jesus says, The law itself says that the testimony of two in agreement is to be taken as fact in deciding any matter. Therefore, if you see Jesus testifying concerning himself with power and authority, and then you see the Father testifying in agreement concerning his identity through the Word and through the Spirit working through Christ, then that should be enough for anyone. They have no legal grounds to refute Christ's claims in this case. Now, there's other people listening to this. right? Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, but there's a crowd there. And now the crowd, having heard that little exchange, is intrigued, I think, by the claims. And they step in to pick up the conversation at this point. They take over the interrogation. Look at verses 19 through 27. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know, neither me nor my father. If you knew me, well, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I have heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the father. So the crowd heard Jesus say that his father had joined him in testifying. They heard him say that to the Pharisees. So naturally they ask, OK, well, where's your father? That question all by itself tells us the crowd didn't understand who Jesus truly was, right? You don't ask that question if you get the whole point. Because if you believe he's the Messiah, then you understand that when he says Father, he's talking about the God who is in heaven. Because they aren't believing in him, the crowd assumes he's speaking about an earthly father. And of course, they ask to see this earthly father. And so naturally, Jesus declares the obvious truth. He says, you don't know me and you don't know my father. Now, they don't know Jesus, of course, in the sense that they don't believe in him as Messiah. That's what he means. They don't know him as Messiah. That's why we walk around sometimes and we say, do you know Jesus? They've heard the word Jesus. They know Jesus in that sense. But you're not asking them, have you heard of Jesus? You're asking them, do you know him? Right? In this true sense of the word. Well, that's what he's saying here. They don't know him. And then he says, if you don't know me, then you don't know the Father in heaven, which is a way of saying that their unbelief 
makes them not children of God. Their unbelief means they are not children of God. Now, there's an important but often overlooked truth of Scripture here that I think is worth clarifying. The Bible says only those who believe in Jesus Christ are God's children. By definition, according to Scripture, as Paul says in Romans 8, 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, speaking of those who are indwelled, these, he says, are the sons of God. Later in Galatians 3.26, he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And there's other references we could use as well. We'll see more of this later in the text that we're reading tonight. But the principle is simple. By faith in Christ, you are born again into a family of God. Paul talks about being adopted into the family of God by faith. So as we understand adoption in an earthly sense, apply that metaphorically to what Christ has done for our sake. In the same way that an earthly family can take a child that was not naturally theirs, but through an adoptive process, bring them into the family, from which point afterward they are legally and in all senses now made a part of that family and truly a son in the family. Likewise, we are born into this world not of God's family, therefore not called God's children. But by faith in Christ, we can be born again and join the family that is the family of God. Now, in the world vernacular, we talk or hear people talk all the time about we are all God's children. The Pope just this week in Manila declared that we are all God's children. Now, we know what he means, right? What he means and what the world generally means when they say that is that we are all descended. Humanity is all descended from a common ancestor. We're all part of the same humanity family. God having created humanity when he made Adam and woman, therefore he is the father of humanity in that sense. We've all descended. We're all part of the family. We're all children of God in that sense. Well, that's a limited, narrow meaning, and it's true in that context, but it's meaningless. It's pointless. It's self-evident. And who cares? The fact that we're all descended from Adam, the fact that we're all related by our nature as human beings is irrelevant to the question of how does God see us? And the Bible says God does not see us as his children unless we are born again by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. So while we like to throw that euphemism around because it makes us all feel good, especially if we don't know Christ, the truth is it's not how God sees us. When these people rejected Christ, they were showing evidence they were not children of the Father in heaven. I mean, you have to deal with the words on the page. For example, if someone were to object to this, this teaching and they're not liking what they're hearing, I want you to consider what Jesus said. Don't consider what I said. He said, you don't know me. You don't know my father. And he says, you're not children of God. John interrupts the narrative at this point just briefly to remind us that Jesus was saying these increasingly provocative statements in a very public setting. He was in the treasury of the temple and the treasury is just another name for the court of women. And the court of women was that outermost area they had built in the temple. It wasn't a part of the original tabernacle. That was a place where any Jew could go. No Gentile could go, but any Jew could go. And because anyone could go there, that's where the priests put up the receptacles where you would pay your tithing or your monetary offerings. His point is Jesus is standing in the most public, the most trafficked part of the temple, right? Which means that what he's saying is so provocative. I mean, here he is calling a whole crowd full of Jews, not God's children. You would almost certainly ex expect in the setting of the temple, a place where they were mostly protected from Roman influence. You would think that in the midst of such provocative speech, it wouldn't have been long before someone would have grabbed him off the whatever he was standing on and beaten him to a pulp. If they had, it wouldn't have been unusual. It certainly wouldn't have been unprecedented. What's unprecedented is they're not doing that. And the answer to why 
To anyone who would be hearing this testimony and thinking about this point, John, you made this up. No one could have stood in the middle of the temple and said these kinds of things and lasted more than 30 seconds. Well, it's not being done to him because it wasn't yet God's sovereign will for him to take a fall. And so God is literally at work preventing him from being attacked. How and in what particular form? We don't know. It doesn't necessarily have to be visible. Could have just been in the hearts of the people, but God was holding him back. Remember this verse the next time you hear someone throw out this overused and theologically inaccurate statement. God loves us so much that he gives us free will. The leaders of Israel who were there in the moment most certainly wanted to seize Jesus. They had almost nothing standing in their way as they were in the temple in this moment. Not even the Romans were there to stop them. And yet they did nothing to stop Jesus, we're told. And John says it's because Jesus's time had not yet arrived, which implies clearly that the father was not permitting it to happen yet. In other words, the father didn't let these evil men do what their will wanted to do. So far from being free, these men were constrained entirely by God's will for them. And there are many, many other examples like this throughout the Bible that disabuse us of this notion that God respects man's will. Now, in verse 21, John picks up the narrative again at a later point in Jesus's discourse. The Greek phrase that opens verse 21 gives us a sense that there's been a bit of time pass. Not much. They're still in the same place. But this doesn't follow immediately from the earlier moment. Jesus tells the crowd, I'm going away. And though you will seek for me, you're going to die in your sin. And where I'm going, you cannot follow. To which the crowd asks to themselves, is he going to kill himself? We know Jesus is speaking about his coming death on the cross and then the ascension into heaven that followed. That's why you can't go where he was going, right? Into heaven is the point. But all he said was, I'm going to go somewhere you can't follow. And what did they conclude? He's going to die. They knew he was talking about going to heaven. It's not like they just totally misunderstood. You're going to go around the corner and we can't follow you. Why can't we follow you? No, they understood. They assumed he was going to commit suicide, which was wrong. But the point is they knew he was talking about death. So they could not have claimed ignorance of what was being said in their midst. They knew he was claiming to be the Messiah. We've seen evidence of that earlier in this discourse. They know he's calling himself the son of his father, who is God in heaven. They've indicated they understood that. They didn't agree with it, but they understood it. Now they understand that he's predicting his own death and his own entry into heaven, a place they could not follow. So you cannot give this crowd the benefit of the doubt. You cannot say Jesus was just speaking in such obscure language and hiding things in such a way that there's no way they could have followed what he was saying. No, they got it. They have all the facts. They just don't believe. Therefore, Jesus says, you can't go where I'm going. Think about that statement for a moment. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that when we die, we enter into the presence of the Lord. Believers enter into the presence of the Lord. Yet Jesus just told this crowd there is no possibility they're going to follow him. Why? Well, the natural answer is because they don't believe in him. Failure to believe in Jesus as Messiah means never following him into heaven. If you won't follow Jesus as a disciple while you live here on the earth, then you're not going to follow him into heaven either. Jesus says to the nation of Israel standing here in the temple that though the nation is going to continue to seek for a Messiah after he's gone, and they still do, at least some, they aren't going to find him. If you reject the truth, then by definition, all you have left to choose from is versions of the lie. You're never going to find the truth again. There are those who claim all Jews will be saved despite their unbelief, merely because they are Jewish. You've heard that? 
Jesus says to a group of Jews that because they do not believe in him, they will die in their sins. Here you see Jesus plainly stating that Jews can die and go to hell for lack of faith in Christ. That outcome is eternal for them as it is for a Gentile. I am not suggesting any less love for God to the people of Israel or his plan to redeem them as a nation. Ultimately, none of that is at risk. But on an individual level, there is no promise in Scripture that just because you were born of your father Abraham, you're destined for heaven. Now, at hearing that they were destined for hell, what do you think the people do at this point, right? They just warm right up to Jesus, don't they? No. They begin to act a lot more interested in his identity, but from the standpoint of an interrogation, as I said, they ask him, who are you? And I think really the way you need to hear this is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Verse 25, he says, you know the answer. It's the same one I've been telling you from the beginning. I'm not going to change my story. It's a rhetorical question to the crowd. He didn't ask them to answer it, of course. It's just there to highlight that they have heard all they need to hear. And he is not going to be persuaded by their ignorance, he says. I love this line. He says, I'm not going to be persuaded by your ignorance when I pass judgment on you at the second resurrection. Now, that's my words, but that's his meaning in verse 26 when he says he has many things to speak and to judge concerning you, these people. I have many things to speak and to judge. I mean, what a scary thought from our point of view, knowing what we know about Christ. God, in the form of flesh, looks at them and says, Oh, yeah, I have a lot to share with you. I'll let you know it's your judgment. It's like when you're in a public place as a child and you're with your mother and she gets mad at you in that public place and she leans over to you quietly and she says, we're going to talk about this when you get home. Am I the only one who's had that moment? Multiple times. I've even had it as a husband a few times. We just know that that isn't going to be a conversation we want to have when the time comes, right? So for now, Jesus says, I have these things, but I'm not going to share them with you now. But for now, I'm here to speak the truth that the Father has given me. In that back and forth, you see again Jesus repeating his mission. I have the potential. I have the authority. And in a day to come, I will execute on that authority to judge. But for now, that's not why I'm here. In their unbelief, John says in verse 27, the crowd just didn't get it. The barrier to their understanding is their own sin. This goes back to John 6 and things we've learned earlier even before that. Only by the work of God's spirit in the heart can that veil be lifted so that we can understand things. It's really remarkable when you look at this scene. Here's a statement that is plain, simple, on its face and is supported by the evidence of Jesus's life and his ministry and his works and his miracles and so on. And yet some people just hear it all and go nowhere with it. It's just it's only explainable in the sense that there is a barrier, supernatural barrier, that's not being lifted in all cases. And as a result, they cannot believe and don't. Nevertheless, even in the midst of that, there is and always will be a remnant of believers within Israel. And this moment is no exception. So at this point in the narrative, the change is, is subtle, but you'll see it. The discussion moves from the crowd generally, which is obviously not approving of Jesus, to a subset of the crowd who is believing. And Jesus begins to direct his remarks to that inner group, that remnant within the larger community of people, at least for just a moment. Verses 28 through 32, Jesus says, so Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. 
Jesus tells them, when you lift up the Son of Man, which is a messianic phrase taken out of Daniel. So he says, when you lift up the Messiah, you know that I am the Messiah you've been waiting for. He speaks to himself now. What he meant was, of course, Jesus being lifted up on the cross in fulfillment of that prophecy. And that would have been Israel's rejection of him as fulfillment. But then that would set into motion a plan that God had already intended for his son to be put to death on behalf of men. And that would lead to things that followed that proved to them that he would be the Messiah. And what are those things that proved it, that led them to belief? Well, it began just in the moment as he's on the cross. The sky goes dark for a period of time, an unexplainable long eclipse. Then there's earthquakes on earth after his death, the renting of the temple veil from top down. That's supernatural. And then, of course, most importantly, the resurrection of his dead body. Those are the proofs that brought people into faith through that process. All of those signs become compelling evidence of his claims. The Holy Spirit uses those signs in Israel to bring faith to many. And the church arises out of that. So John says, even now, as he's explaining what's going to happen for the sake of many in Israel, even now there are those in the crowd who are hearing these words and are believing the remnant. It's present in the moment. And for this brief time in the narrative, Jesus begins to address them personally. And the key message he gives them is that for anyone who believes in Jesus, you must continue in my word. I really find this to be a very powerful place to go for anyone you want to convince that the word of God is the most important thing they can do as a Christian. Jesus spoke for two verses to the believers in the midst of a longer narrative about himself and a crowd of unbelievers. He could have said anything in, in, in imaginable to this group in the two verses that he chose to use, right? He could have said, whatever you do, love one another and take care of the poor. Whatever you do, keep yourself holy and upright and go to church regularly. Whatever you do, make sure you keep up with your tithing. What did he choose to say in the limited space that he chose to give to that group in that place? What did he say? He said, those who continue in the word of Christ are showing themselves truly to be his disciple. The word disciple, as you probably know, just means pupil or student or generally a follower. And he says, you have become a disciple by faith in Christ's word. Truly, if you abide in that word. Paul starts that sequence, as you probably know, in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, when he says that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So even our entry into faith is a product of the word of God in our heart. And then uh, verse 31 emphasizes the need to be truly a disciple. The word truly in Greek is alethos. It simply means to be surely or indeed for sure. We might say today for sure is disciple. It's emphasizing the degree of something, not the certainty of it. The degree, not the certainty. Can you be partly saved? No, it's like being partly pregnant. It doesn't make sense. So he's not saying you truly are a disciple, meaning you've really, really become one. He means the degree to which you are honoring me with your life, the degree to which you witness to your faith. The disciple of the greatest degree is the one who continues in the word of God. And continues is another important word. Continues means to rely entirely on the word of God. Not to give it passing interest, glancing interest, occasional interest. It's the old phrase, there's no atheist in a foxhole. Well, everyone's good for Bible study and prayer when they're in the middle of a life-changing trial. But when things are going well, where's the word of God? Gathering dust on the shelf? Well, then you're not continuing in the word of God. You're not truly the disciple you're supposed to be. You're the occasional disciple, the fair-weather disciple. Jesus says that pleasing him depends on continuing or you could say another word that will come up commonly in John's gospel, abiding in his word. If a Christian doesn't make studying and living out the word of God a priority in their life, 
then they cannot be said to be a disciple to the fullest extent, certainly not to the extent Christ expects according to what he writes here in John 8.31. So one reward, not the only one, but one reward for pursuit of the word of God is that Jesus says we come to know the truth. We come to know the truth in all respects, not merely the truth of what's written in the pages. We're not talking here about merely knowing the Bible. Can you answer Bible trivia? Can you win on Jeopardy? That's not what he means by knowing the truth, right? That's trivializing what we're talking about. It's not your general knowledge of the Bible. We're talking about your general knowledge of God's mind and heart and character. We not only learn what the master wrote, but we also come to know the master himself. That's the point of continuing in his word. Friends, that's the reason why verse-by-verse ministry exists. This verse is why we exist. We believe that there is simply nothing else a believer can do or even should do to truly be a disciple of Christ other than study of God's word, abiding and continuing in his word. That's why we make study and application of his word the priority of our ministry. I don't know anything else I can do that's better. Like Mary and Martha, I want to choose the good part, and I want others to do the same. So now the conversation returns to the unbelievers who proceed to attack him for all that he's been saying. And they're trying to pick apart his argument. Look in verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. So how is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They begin to pick on what he says here, and they start with this concept that Jesus can set them free, and they challenge him to explain how they're enslaved. Now, what's so ironic about that is, They say they are Abraham's descendants, which means, therefore, they are Israel. And they use that claim to suggest we're not enslaved as if we've never been enslaved. That's ironic because they've been enslaved for one degree or another almost continuously for hundreds of years. In fact, as they spoke these words, they were under Roman occupation. Oh, but we've never been enslaved. I mean, we're Jews. Well, that's why you're always enslaved, because that's what God has put upon the Jewish people. I mean, they're not slaves in the hardest sense of the word. We understand that, right? But they're certainly not free, right? And yet they're so prideful and self-deluded that they would claim this, this state of freedom in contradiction to what Jesus said when he said he would set them free. Now, of course, Jesus isn't talking about slavery to another man. He's on a whole different level. We understand that. He's talking about slavery in your nature. The sin nature of a person enslaves that person. It's a slavery because you're not master over yourself, though you think you are, though we all like to think we are. Sin is actually our master. It owns us. It controls us. And if we have any potential at all to resist it and to master it, it's at best temporary and fleeting. And usually it's just self-deluded. You think you're mastering it when you're really just living in it. It binds us. It drives us. And ultimately, as Jesus said, it leads you to destruction. But the truth, and the truth in this context must mean the truth of knowing who Christ is, the truth of knowing the gospel, that truth has the power to set you free from that slavery. The truth grants you a new spirit at the point of being born again. That's a spirit that is capable of resisting sin, the sin of your flesh. It sets up a war, in fact, as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 7, a war between this new spirit that has a yearning to obey God's law in contrast to an old flesh that it's still having to contend with, that still you're, you're still occupying, which is set against God in the law. 
And that, that's the new battle of the believer. So you have the power now to resist that. You have the power to resist the temptations of the devil, Scripture says. Ultimately, knowing Christ sets you free truly because it removes the penalty of sin, which assures us of a resurrection into new life. These people, though, claim to be exempt from such worry about slavery and the like. Because why? Because we're descended from Abraham. Physical descendants of Abraham being physical descendants. In other words, being called a Jew. That's their insurance policy. They say they are sons of Abraham. And he says, yet here you are trying to kill Abraham's seed. Because Jesus is a son of Abraham. He was the son of Abraham, the seed, the Messiah promised through Abraham. So now you, you get a sense Jesus has taken the gloves off because then he says, you have a different father than the one I have who is in heaven. Now, obviously, we know who he's talking about, right? Every unbeliever is an agent of Satan, though, of course, that person usually doesn't recognize it. None of us were born Christian. So all of us were born in that same state. All of us, at least for some part of our life, were literally children of Satan, enemies of God. Ironically, there's an irony here in that there are unbelievers in the world who claim to be Satanists, who claim to be followers of Satan. What's ironic is, as Satan worshippers, they're actually closer to understanding their true identity than most unbelievers are. <laughs> Jesus speaks concerning the things he has seen, he says, the same things the Father has seen. And so he continues to emphasize his oneness with the Father, because how could a mere man have seen anything the Father has seen? So he's obviously saying he is God as well. But this crowd is only able to speak about what's been revealed to them by their Father. If they can't hear from the Father who is in heaven, then they only have the devil feeding them knowledge. And so Jesus goes on to explain. Verse 39, they answered and they said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father. God, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and have come from God for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. So now it all starts to come to a head. They begin to protest. Abraham is absolutely our father. And by associating themselves with Abraham, what are they doing? They're claiming to be like him. That's the point in saying what they're saying. They're saying we are of Abraham, therefore we are as Abraham. And in doing so, they fall right into Jesus's trap, because if they are truly of Abraham, then they would follow Abraham's faith. They would follow in his footsteps. They would have done the deeds that Abraham did. Specifically, the most notable of those deeds, the one that really defined him in his prominence in the scripture, is in Genesis 15:6, when it says, Then Abraham believed in the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's why he's called the father of faith. By his faith in God's word, Abraham was deemed righteous. But this crowd is anything like Abraham. 
when it comes to that, right? Instead, they're seeking to kill the God who spoke to Abraham. Clearly, that's something Abraham did not do. Again, Jesus provokes his audience in verse 41. He says, you are doing the deeds of your father, their father, he says, which by now we clearly understand that to be a reference to the enemy. And so they respond. They say, God is our father. Jesus counters that those who are the sons of God will love Christ. Another litmus test, if you will. Here again, you see the definition of a son or daughter in Scripture. Those who say we're all sons of God. Now, the Scripture says you're a son of God if you know Christ is Lord. And the reason that we equate loving Christ with being of the Father is that these two are actually one. You can't separate the Trinity. You can't divide the three members of the Godhead. So it is literally and spiritually impossible for the same heart to love one member of the Godhead while despising another. That's not spiritually possible. So Jesus stands before the crowd, and in doing so, he becomes a test for their hearts. If you responded positively to his words, then you're giving evidence that you have been loved by the Father, made a child of God, and now are in love with God and with Jesus who God sent. Now we're back to that topic of what is the essence of or the nature of saving faith. We're back to that for a moment. Jesus says in verse 43, look, the unbelieving crowd could not understand what Jesus was saying because they can't hear his word. Now, the way you would say it, if you thought it was all within their own control, you would say they're not listening to his word, which is why they're not believing. But the Bible just said it backwards. The Bible said they're not believing because they can't hear his word. They're obviously not deaf. They obviously can hear. So what else could the Bible mean when it says they can't hear his word? It doesn't mean literally physically. It can only mean spiritually. It means they cannot receive what he is speaking. It's going out. It's going nowhere in their hearts, which is why they do not believe him. The ability to hear the word of God and to receive it as truth depends on the ministry of the Holy Spirit to enable us to have that understanding. As we learned in John 6, that ability is entirely dependent on the Father having granted us ears to hear. Well, essentially, Jesus is telling this crowd, you can't understand me because you're not in the family of God. And they aren't in the family of God because the Father hasn't opened their ears. Now, to settle the paternity question, names, names. He says, your father is the devil. Now, to say that someone has the father as the devil means they have not been born again. Remember, everybody is born once physically. And when you are born once, you're born into the nature of the fallen Adam that we descend from. Now, that fallen nature owes its existence to the enemy who brought sin into the garden, who authored the fall in the garden. So in that sense, and that's what Jesus means here, every unbeliever can be said to be the child of the devil and under the devil's authority. The principle the crowd was trying to apply earlier when they were saying that because they are from Abraham, they can claim an association with him, therefore they can claim to be like him. That principle they were resting on, well, that principle is what Jesus is working with right here as well. He says, you are like the one you descend from. The problem is you didn't descend from Adam, you've got to go further back. You descended from the devil. And friends, all unbelievers share the devil's character attributes to one degree or another, the devil, Jesus says, was a murderer from the beginning. Now, he's referring to Satan's effort to murder what he thought was the Messiah when he orchestrated Abel's death. Now, remember, though, it wasn't the devil who showed up and killed Abel. We remember the story. It was Cain. It was his brother Cain. 
Well, Jesus doesn't say that Cain was the murderer from the beginning. He says the devil was, and yet the first murder was Abel. Well, clearly then what he's illustrating is that the evil heart of an unbelieving man, Cain in this case, is a reflection of the corrupting influence of Satan, who is the author of that corruption. So you trace it back to Satan. So while Cain was the one with the anger and the jealousy and the hatred in his heart, where did all of that come from? Jesus' answer is from Satan. So it's fair to say that Satan was murdering Abel because he was inspiring that murderous heart in Cain. And here again, Satan is working through the evil hearts of this crowd to murder the Messiah in the flesh. It's only the father holding them back. So he's a murderer. Secondly, Satan is a liar. There's no truth in him. Listen to that. He's a liar and there's no truth in him. We often talk to people about being liars, but I doubt we ever consider in our minds that they are 100% liars. There's some moment in every day when we at least say something's truthful. They might have lied every other moment of the day, but somewhere in there, there was a truthful statement, right? But God says Satan is 100% aligned against the truth, against God. Whatever God says or advocates, Satan will reliably speak or act in exactly the opposite direction. His primary tactic, of course, is to distort or pervert whatever God says. So I like to say Satan has never had an original thought in his head. Everything he's ever done has been to take what God has done or said and corrupt or distort it in some way for his own purposes. In keeping with the principle Jesus just espoused, those who are under Satan's authority and made in his likeness will follow in his pattern. That's the principle that Jesus is working through here, right? So this crowd molded in the likeness of the devil is going to be liars as well. And so is the unbelieving world. And more than that, he says, what the devil teaches you as your father is going to resonate with you because he's speaking to someone of his own nature. While God's words spoken from the lips of Christ, that's going to fall on deaf ears because it makes no sense to you. Now, before we go any further, let's acknowledge that this rule isn't without exceptions, at least on a small scale. And by that, I mean, you can find unbelievers who do kind and caring things for other people. You can find unbelievers who act generously at times. You can find unbelievers who show kindness and consideration for others from time to time. We all probably know unbelievers who are generally trustworthy, generally truthful. Some of them may be close friends and family members, etc. And on the other side of the coin, we know believers who act in very ungodly ways at times, including ourselves. Believers who lie, who cheat, who scheme, who are unkind and uncaring to others, who act violently even against one another. We know these things are out there, too. But, friends, those exceptions only serve to prove the rule. I mean, it's a relatively rare and refreshing thing to find unbelievers who consistently act with genuine kindness and selflessness and generosity and the kind of attributes we typically associate with Christians who walk in the spirit. And I think it's equally rare to find true believers, genuine disciples who show a pattern of no fruit in the spirit in their relationship. And the rarity of those cases reminds us that there is an undeniable pattern that differentiates those who are sons of God from those who are sons of the enemy. And I would argue that if any Christian is honest in their own life and has been diligent in their pursuit of Christ since their saving moment, they can look on their own life and see that contrast very clearly. If you've been a Christian for very long at all, you should be able to look and see the difference of who you are from who you were. Now the argument comes to its climactic end on this feast day, verse 46. He says, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God, and for this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, 
But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So he first says in verse 46, who can convict me of sin? What he's saying is, I have no sin. Think about that for a moment. He stands in front of this huge crowd. And I'm not saying they're all sitting listening to him, but I bet a lot of them are at this point, because this is the best show you could find in the court right now. He asks the whole crowd, show me evidence that I have ever sinned. That's what he means by who convicts me of sin. Can you imagine making a similar statement on your own behalf to a huge crowd, particularly if within that crowd were people who had followed you for months or years, as some of the people have in this case, to stand up and ask them, who in here says I've ever sinned? Wouldn't you be afraid of the answer that's going to come back from that question? I would, right? Who would dare to even ask that question? But in this case, Jesus can say that statement and get no response, I should add, because he never sins. There is no record that anyone in this moment could offer of a single example of sin. How can any man safely claim to be without sin and get away with it, except that by making such a claim, they are showing themselves to be God, because only God is without sin. So if no one can convict Jesus of any sin, then he follows with the next logic. He says, "Okay, let me get this straight. None of you can say you've ever seen me sin, but now you don't believe me. Isn't the word of a sinless man trustworthy by definition? Wouldn't that make him a pretty convincing witness? And yet they reject him. Even more clearly, Jesus says his words are the words of God in verse 47. He says, those who are of God will hear what I say, referring to what he's been speaking. And naturally, this crowd's unable to hear and understand his words because they aren't of God. Here's that dilemma again. You cannot understand who God is and hear him unless you are already of God. Who can start that process except God? He's trying to point out that this question of coming to know who Jesus is does not rest in the intellect or logic of human thought. It rests solely in the supernatural work of God in the heart to bring us into that moment. In this exchange, we get the opportunity to see the impossibility of a heart that's not moved by God into believing that Jesus is Messiah. At this point, you can tell they're just getting frustrated because they resort to personal attacks. They call him a Samaritan and a demon-possessed person. Just put these in your hip pocket because these are great. These are some of the worst. <laughs> these are the worst accusations you can direct against anyone in a Jewish context. You call someone a Samaritan, that's pretty low. There's one insult that's worse in their minds. You know what that is? To be called a Gentile. But why are they not calling him a Gentile? Because they're in the court of the women. You can't be a Gentile and be in the court of the women. The worst you could be is maybe you snuck in as a Samaritan and we didn't know it because Samaritans claim to be Jew and they live like Jews. You might have been able to fake it on the way in. So he says, you're a Samaritan. They call him a Samaritan in part, I think, because his association with the Galilee puts him in, in close proximity to Samaria. So they might have thought, you know, he was part of the Samaritan crowd up there. The demon possessed insult. That insult is said, I believe, to explain his miraculous power. So notice in verse 49, Jesus just flatly denies their accusations. But then he says something very sobering. He says, you are dishonoring me. Attributing the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the power that allowed Christ to do what he did in his miracles, attributing that power to Satan, which is what they just did, is something Jesus encounters more than once in the Gospels. But every time it happens, the crowd is repeating the unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which Jesus explains in Matthew 12. We don't have time for an extended conversation on that sin, but to put it simply, these people were standing in the living presence of the Messiah in the flesh, watching him do works of power through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the work of the Holy Spirit. 
seeing that in the flesh, they still declared him to be Satan. And as he said, that sin dishonored Jesus. And it is an unforgivable sin for anyone who in that generation committed it. Ultimately, it resulted in that entire generation of of Israel falling into judgment. Those of us today who might wonder, well, can I repeat this sin? The answer quickly is no, because you cannot stand in the physical presence of a fleshly Jesus and declare his power of the spirit to be that of Satan. He's not present. There's no way to do that today. And he was referring specifically to that dishonoring. So one day they will be judged and they will pay the price for dishonoring God's only son. Jesus says he's working for the one who seeks and judges. I'm not a threat to you in this moment, but you are still in jeopardy. And there is one who judges and one who seeks, and he will one day bring you to judgment. He speaks truth to them concerning their judgment, and then he turns right around and he makes known that there is an escape available for those who would believe in him. He says the gospel again. I love the fact that the gospel is never far from Jesus's mind or in his words. He says if they keep his word, they won't see death, which, of course, refers to the second death in the lake of fire. Friends, that's the model we've been handed. And that's the one we should be following as well. You need to be prepared to defend your faith and to some extent your own testimony. But that should not be the emphasis in your ministry, however you conduct ministry. If you are, are attacked for what you believe, then don't be surprised. That's what's expected. Don't take those attacks personally. The world may dishonor us. Because they dishonored Christ before us. But you've got to push that aside like he did, at least in this case. Leave room for the wrath of God in that case. Leave room for the vengeance of God. Go back to offering the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he does. That's what we should do. He doesn't sit there and say, oh, that's the last straw. He comes right back with the gospel. Verses 52 to 58. Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died, too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him. But I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it. And was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now you get about as acrimonious as any exchange in the scriptures, as far as I can remember. In fact, given their obvious hard hearts, to go back to my question a minute ago, you might have to wonder, why did he pursue the conversation this far anyway, right? The Jews say they know Jesus must have a demon. Because he's sitting here saying that those who keep my word won't die. Now, again, they're taking Jesus's words very literally here. They're asking Jesus, are you greater than all of those great men who preceded you who died? But you're saying your word is powerful enough to keep people from dying. So you're not greater than those men, are you? And of course, they expected Jesus to say, well, no, I'm not greater than Abraham. I mean, who could be greater than Abraham? Who could be greater than the prophets? There is so much irony here. We hardly know where to start listing it all out. First. The crowd set forth the standard that all men die. Okay, even the great men of history died. Fine. But they never go to the next step and ask, well, why do men die? The answer Paul gives in Romans 5, of course, is that all men have sin and therefore all men must die because of their sin. And that death, of course, doesn't end with the body, but there's another death. That death can extend to the soul as well if the body 
if you don't know Christ as Lord, right? That second death in the lake of the fire, that, that's the bad one. But Jesus has just said, those who heed my word won't experience death, not at least in the sense of the eternal death of the lake of fire. But when we talk about Jesus dying, the death that he's going to die is for our sake so that we don't have to die. So the irony here is that the man without sin, who should never die, was prepared to die. Meanwhile, those he's offering to save are mocking him for claiming to be better than the men who die. Men who died knowing that a Christ would one day die in their place, I might add. I mean, it's just this circular logic. They're applying this circular logic, which if they unpacked it properly and looked at it, they'd be asking the more important questions, which is, why are you going to die if you're saying that you're sinless? You see, the answers were right there, but they're not listening. As Jesus says, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. What he means, of course, is Abraham understood the gospel. Now, people have often seen this in John's gospel and wonder, well, what did Abraham really know? When we hear him rejoicing, did he know Jesus would be a man born in Bethlehem by the name of Jesus and and so on? Well, no, and I don't think that's required in the context here. What he knew was that there was a savior promised one day. Even what we see in Genesis reflects that in the way Abraham is told that there would be through him a seed who would come for the sake of the whole world. Jesus has repeatedly said he is working to glorify the father. And Jesus knows this crowd has never known the father and they should be more like the Abraham who rejoiced in his day. He hasn't pulled any punches. He hasn't softened his language. He keeps speaking harshly because these are not his sheep. In the final moments of the discussion, the crowd reacts to him mentioning that he rejoiced. They say, look, you're not even 50 yet. How did you even see Abraham? Of course, this is just further proof they don't see with spiritual eyes. They're hearing with unbelieving ears. They assume you're just a man. You couldn't have been that old. Well, Jesus gives them the point plainly. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Clearly, again, claiming to be God. You couldn't select a better phrase, by the way, to make that point to a Jewish audience, because this I am statement of which there are several in John's gospel. But this one in particular is so powerful because it echoes the statement that Jesus himself made speaking from the burning bush to Moses in this crowd's mind in any Jew's mind. It is the name of God standing in the temple. The one who's intended to inhabit it is standing in the courtyard declaring The unforgettable words given to Moses, I am. He says, I am the great I am. He is God, the eternal, awesome, holy God. If you accept his claim, then that agreement is proof in itself that you are a child of God, that you've been made so by the will and power of the Father. But if you cannot accept that statement, you are of your father, the devil, and you will die in your sin. We'll cover the last verse in this chapter next week as part of the opening to John 9. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for patience. And for attentiveness, thank you, Father, for the power and and testimony of your word. And, Father, I thank you that by the power of the Spirit, you have made us children and called us your friend. Let us share that news with others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.